You're tuned to The Conversation here on Hawaii Public Radio. I'm Catherine Cruz. Staffing at our jails and prisons are not a new problem, but HPR reporter Sabrina Bowden sat down with State Public Safety Director Tommy Johnson to talk about what can be done to fill this critical need. Good morning. Good morning, Catherine. So over at the Department of Public Safety, there are about 300 vacancies among adult corrections officers. And typically, correction officers retire with about 30 years of service. And prior to the pandemic, the Department of Human Resources Development did a study to find out how much staff were eligible to retire in the near future. And that study found a high rate of potential retirees. And the effects are being st- are still being felt today. Tommy Johnson is the director of the Department of Public Safety. And and he explains how the silver, the silver tsunami, which is a wave of retirements, uh, has affected the department. The pandemic hit about the same time the silver tsunami did, so we lost a lot of good corrections officers with 30 years experience in 2000, late 2019 through 2020, 21, and into 2022. So uh, right now we're at the tail end of that silver tsunami, um, but it's really hurt us. Uh, because we lost a lot of experience going out the door. Uh, We've increased our recruitment efforts almost uh, 50% from 2020 when I came on board till June of this year. We have a class graduating on the 12th of June with 12 um, ACO recruits. That puts us at about 200 recruits since then. So in the middle of the pandemic, we actually were recruiting hard. Um, right now, we have about uh, 302 uh, vacant positions, ACO positions, which pushes about just under 20% vacancy rate. Now, 300, that, that's mm-hmm. about the same amount that the, the Honolulu Police Department has. Yeah, and it sounds like a huge number, but comparatively, Hawaii's vacancy rate is actually a little bit better than other jurisdictions. So according to Johnson, some jurisdictions are operating at 36 to 40%, which is pretty typical across the state. And since Hawaii's correctional facilities are outdated, they oftentimes need more staffing. So vacancies lead to more overtime costs, right? In 2021, the state spent about $29.4 million in overtime for the department. That grew to $34 million in 2022. And this year, they're on track to spend about $37 million in overtime. Johnson says that updating the facilities like the Oahu Community Correctional Center has the opportunity to lower staffing across the board. Well, the way the facility is laid out now, because it's so old and antiquated, it's staff intensive. I'll give you an example. The federal detention center can hold 1,100 um, uh, offenders with a little over 200 staff. A lot of it has to do with the design building up. OCCC, on the other hand, has a huge footprint because it's spread out. And because it's so old, then we have about 430-something corrections off staff, corrections officers at OCCC at any given time. We have 100-something staff on duty. Whereas at a more efficient uh, design facility, we could probably have maybe 80 staff on duty for the same amount of inmates because of the design and the way the facility is laid out and with more modern uh, security surveillance techniques. And the state has been trying to replace the Oahu Community Correctional Center for nearly a decade. This past session, lawmakers appropriated funding for the planning and design phase in the upcoming fiscal year, but lawmakers underfunded the, fi- the facility by about $15 million over the next two years. The facility is estimated to cost around $500 million in total. Every year we delay the project, it costs more. So initially in 2018, the projected cost was a little over um, $500 million. That same facility today, if you think about um, escalation costs of 8 to 10 percent escalation costs, and you look at every month, it's about $3.5 million um, in cost increase. So um, critics say, well, uh, if you build it, they will come. Well, they're already here. Our consensus at OCCC is over about 1,100. Uh, critics say, well, you should build a 700-bed facility. Well, where are we going to put them? If we build a 700-bed facility and we have 1,100 inmates, you're going to have people on the floor already, two to a cell. What did he say about the uh, you know lawmakers not coming through with the funding? Well, he essentially said that you know the longer we delay this, the more it's going to cost, and the more it's going to cost in overtime. And with overtime, they don't really build it into their operational budget, so they have to move money from upgrading the facilities into paying those overtime costs for ACOs. Right, and then that adds up when it comes time for retirement, mm-hmm. and, and so, yeah, the taxpayers are 
ending up footing a bill. Um, but it just seems like it, it, it must be a very frustrating situation that he's in because, you know, we could, you know, we, f- we face a federal takeover if, if we don't improve those conditions mm-hmm. at OCCC. Yeah, and regarding ACOs, they're trying to meet recruits where they're at. So whether that's changing training by reducing the time spent in the academy and getting more hands-on training, or changing the physical, physical requirements to become an ACO, the Department of Public Safety is trying to get more people in. Okay, well, we'll see uh, how mm-hmm. those recruits uh, do when they graduate uh, next month, in a yes. couple of weeks. Mm-hmm. <laughs> All right, thanks so much. Thank you, Sabrina. Catherine. We've been talking to HBR's Sabrina Bowden. You can look for her stories on hawaiipublicradio.org. reality check today, Honolulu Civil Beat has a story about how lawmakers failed to fund uh, money to build an overpass for a new Maui High School. It is a sore spot with some Valley Isle residents. Reporter Marina Riker on the line this morning. Good morning. Good morning and thank you so much for having me. Yes, so this story when I read this weekend, uh, it just amazed me. I mean, I was actually a little surprised when I found out um, over the course of the reporting as well. How did this happen? This story starts a long time ago. It starts in 2013 when the Hawaii Land Use Commission actually ordered the Department of Education to build either a, they call it a a grade-separated crossing. Um, So that means either an overpass above the highway in front of this new high school or an underpass under the highway so that way kids could cross over a busy four-lane highway to the new school. Clearly, a lot of time has gone by since 2013, and the department kept haggling back and forth about whether to build an overpass or whether to build an underpass. And then instead, the Department of Education ended up building a $16 million roundabout in front of the school, but that also doesn't satisfy that requirement. So here we are, and and, um, education officials in February had promised the Land Use Commission that they would be seeking emergency appropriations this year from lawmakers to finally get an overpass built because they've been wanting to open the school. I realized through the course of my reporting that that there wasn't any money appropriated in the budget for that ask. And so what did the lawmakers say? You know, why wasn't it included? Um, that, that was something that I actually wasn't able to find out. So um, I was able to talk with Maui's Senator Angus McKelvey, and he said that he had put $15 million into the Senate's version of the state budget for the overpass, but that did not make it into the final budget. I tried to, to reach out to House lawmakers. South Maui's Rep. Teresa Motto had said that she is actually asking for federal funding to try to fund the project, but she won't hear back on that um, until the end of the year. Um, and then I tried to reach out to the House's finance chair, um, Representative Representative Kyle Yamashita, but I, was, I wasn't able to hear back. So at this point, I don't actually really know what happened. That's, I mean, that's still an unanswered question. If it's going to take three years to build this pedestrian bridge, um, I mean, gosh, it's just another delay, right? I mean, they, they, they put off opening the school and then now they're busing the kids in. Yes, yeah. And they haven't opened the school yet with that plan. The, the campus... Um, they had tried to open in, in January, but were denied that because they they didn't have the uh, kind of a set plan in place that uh, the county and the state would approve of. They hope to have a temporary workaround where they bus each child to campus, um, and they're hoping to open the school in the fall. It's unclear, yeah, at this point, kind of when we're going to see an overpass. They said that that was going to be the workaround solution until we had a safe crossing for students. So, yeah, this could just add another delay to this project that has had a lot of delays over the last 10 years. Well, you know, judging by the number of hits and comments that people are leaving on your story, that, yeah, it, it is a sore spot. 
Very much so. Um, it's just something where a lot of folks here just really want to see some accountability in this, and, and some people feel like there hasn't been. Yeah, I mean, it would be, you know, good to find out if this idea of getting federal funds, if that even has a chance, but certainly raises a lot more questions uh, about what the lawmakers are doing to resolve this situation. Yes, yeah, and that's something that hopefully I'll continue to follow up on. And you also mentioned in your story about how uh, the Department of Education has unspent money in their budget that they often have to return. Yes, yeah, so that's another issue, um, and that's an issue that affects every school across the state of Hawaii. But that's something that, yeah, we have about a billion dollars that the Department of Education has for major construction projects that needs to be spent by next summer. But the issue is that a lot of that money has specific uh, ways that it can be spent. So it can't just be reallocated across the departments. Okay, but it just doesn't, uh, it doesn't look good. <laughs> if you have unspent money and then we can't even get uh, funding uh, to build this uh, necessary overpass. Uh, but thanks so much, Marina. Thank you so much for having me. We have been talking to Marina Riker for today's Reality Check. You can read her story online at civilbeat.org. is the conversation on statewide member-supported Hawaii Public Radio. Now it's time for your backyard quiz. For our backyard quiz, we are eyeing feline anatomy today. For those of you who choose a cat for your friendly animal companion, you may have noticed the appearance of extra skin over their eyes. The third eyelid is nature's way of protecting a cat's eyes. This alien-like attribute is common in many animals, including dogs, birds, and reptiles. Originating from the interior corner of the eye, the retractable third eyelid is usually hidden, but can extend across the entire surface of the eye. Made up of cartilage and a tear-producing gland, the pigment varies in color from white to pink. Unlike birds and reptiles where the eyelid is moved at will, in cats it is a passive movement, usually appearing while the animal sleeps or when the eye has sustained an injury. For today's Backyard Quiz, what is the name of this mysterious third eyelid? Call 808-941-3689 or 877-941-3689 if you know the answer. The first one to get it right wins a reusable HBR tote bag. Support for the Backyard Quiz comes from Nairit Hawaii and its Community Giving Initiative. Learn more about how this program is supporting nonprofits focusing on affordable housing projects at nairithawaii.com. Tonight at 8 p.m., the Hawaii Symphony lights up HPR 2's airwaves with guest conductor and pianist Anne-Marie McDermott performing Beethoven's brilliant concertos number no. 2 and 3. We'll also hear Ko'u Inoa, an original work by Kanaka Maoli composer Lelehua Lancelotti. That's 8 p.m. tonight, right after evening concert on HPR2, your home for classical music. Sponsored by Honolulu Financial Partners. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from Mobi, a Hawaii wireless company since 2005, featuring a locally-based customer care team committed to problem-solving and personal service for each client. Learn more at Mobi.com.
Devin Chu was raised in Hilo and is an astronomer with the UCLA Galactic Center Orbits Initiative. He led a 10-year survey of young stars near the center of the Milky Way galaxy using Keck Observatory on Mauna Kea. Chu spoke with the conversation Stephanie Hahn about how the stars near a black hole at our galaxy's core are all single. Normally, these stars are paired with a twin or even exist in triplet form. Chu gives us more about this strange solitary life of the young stars at our Milky Way Center and offers encouraging advice to young astronomers. So we've been looking at these young massive stars that are at around the central supermassive black hole for over a decade. And what we've found is that none of these stars are actually in binary systems, which is where a pair of stars orbit each other. This discovery is very interesting because normally these massive stars like these usually come in pairs. We see these a lot in other parts of the galaxy, but for some reason not here. And this, I think this is very interesting because the lack of these binary stars really speaks to this incredibly interesting environment around the supermassive black hole. Uh, we think this really speaks to how um, the black hole can cause these binary stars to merge together or cause a binary star system to become disrupted where one star is ejected and another star remains um, in the region orbiting the supermassive black hole. This is very interesting. And what I also thought was fascinating was that you use a lot of language to anthropomorphize this this event, talking about things like the single star or pairing up or how they spend their childhood years. So I'm getting almost a real human picture, which is probably a better way for me to relate to it. These stars around the supermassive black hole, when I say they're... Um, Massive. These are stars that are 10, 15, or 15 times as massive as our sun. And granted, we know the sun the best because it's closest to us and so we're most familiar with. But we really are trying to understand these other types of stars in the universe. And so to do that, we have to look beyond our sun to these other different environments. And it's really cool because we can actually look to the center of our galaxy and find these really and massive young stars that are right next to a supermassive black hole. And we want to see how these stars essentially compare to our sun and other stars that we find elsewhere, like around the pop, elsewhere in our galaxy, for instance, is one neighborhood different than another. And what's interesting is that we find is that um, these young stars, these young mass stars, again, they seem to behave differently than young massive stars in other parts of the galaxy. And, we think this really has to speak to just the environment that are in next to the supermassive black hole. And it really speaks to how, while we might be able to, while we find these young massive stars in all parts of the galaxy, they do appear to have different uh, population characteristics depending on where they are within our own galaxy, mm-hmm. which I think is very interesting. How does this potentially shift the way we think about ourselves? How might we live differently if we know about the stars? What's just really interesting about this type of work is, again, just we're trying to understand how the universe works around us. Um, even on Earth and even nearby Earth, we can really see how like certain physical processes, such as gravity and things like that, how that works. But then how can we try and relate this to like very extreme environments outside of our planet? I think it's just really cool to see just how it's interesting to think about how the environment that we live in just affects us our everyday life and sort of like sort of extrapolating from that it's really cool to see the environment of say like the different parts of our galaxy affects how different processes work around us so trying to see how we think star formation works but then seeing that it does it is impacted and it's affected by the presence of a supermassive black hole or whether it's further away. It's just interesting to see just how, again, the environment where things take place have very dramatic effects in uh, physical processes that we think we understand, but then we can see the influence that the environment has on these processes. And is this something that we have to worry about, this, this supermassive black hole that's Oh, definitely nothing we have to worry about. Our um, absolutely nothing to worry about. Our, our Earth is like definitely safe. We're located quite far away from this 
particular area of the galaxy, like over 20,000 light years. So there's nothing to worry about any type of gravitational collapse or anything like, like that. Uh, but it's definitely an interesting area of the sky to look at and to see real, to see like stars move at a very fast pace and seeing stars orbit on the scale of like a few years, which is uh, very, very interesting. So what prompted you to enter astronomy? I understand that you were a student at Hilo Intermediate and high, high School, and you returned. Were you always interested in astronomy? I first became interested in astronomy uh, going to the Hilo Public Library and checking out books on science. That really got me interested in astronomy. I remember especially a book called Our Solar System that had pictures of the planets, um, and that really got me interested in exploring um, my universe more and getting interested in those particular topics. Now that I grew up in Hilo, I continued to attend a different science events, such as Future Flight Hawaii and Journey Through the Universe. This really helped foster my interest in the subject. Mm-hmm. As I was a yeah, student at Hilo Intermediate and Hilo High, I continued to uh, actually work with uh, different of uh, my teachers and different mentors at the observatories on science fair projects. Mm-hmm. And all these different processes helped me um, continue my interest in astronomy and get a better handle of the scientific process. And that inspired me to continue my studies in astronomy. And I always, I always believed that astronomy would be a way for me to eventually come back home and uh, maintain my uh, ties to the big island where I'm from. So what piece of advice do you have for some young astronomers out there? My advice to young astronomers is to definitely uh, reach out to those uh, in the community, especially in Hawaii. We are so fortunate to have uh, what I believe is a very welcoming community. And it's just a matter of taking it, being able to really just make those uh, connections with those and find those that are willing to uh, help each other. And I and that can go a long way to just continuing either a career in astronomy or even just something related, whether it's in the sciences or even non-sciences, but forming these connections and finding a support group is truly uh, something that I think is very helpful and something that I think we're very lucky to have in Hawaii because I really do feel that there's this aloha spirit where we're willing to really help each other and we're all in, invested in each other's success. That was Hilo-based astronomer Devin Chu talking with HBR Stephanie Hahn about young, lonely stars and how they behave around a black hole. continue to talk about the universe. Astronomer Christopher Phillips and HPR's Dave Lawrence tell us about the hunt for the remnants of an old star that no longer exists. Here's this week's Stargazer. Stargazer time, our weekly look into the fascinating and massive universe around our tiny planet and also things we can try and spot in our dark skies. As usual, we're thrilled to be welcoming back the uh, significant prowess of astronomer Christopher Phillips. And hey, Chris, welcome back. What you got this week? Hey, Dave. It's good to be back. So this week, stargazers, look out for Venus in the western sky after sunset. It is very bright and easy to spot, just above the horizon. The moon this week will be passing through its last quarter phase, and so spotting those faint objects in the heavens will be challenging indeed. I know one I don't think you're going to be spotting, even though it's sort of close to us, a brand new supernova? Yes, discovered by an amateur supernova hunting superstar. He spotted a brilliant supernova in the Pinwheel Galaxy, also known as M101. This news was quickly circulated within the astronomy community and astronomers all over the world swung into action to obtain detailed follow-up observations of this extraordinary event. Now, even though stuff seems really far away from us, and is, this is rather close in the bigger picture. Try to explain that. Yeah, it sure is. And also, it's one of the most photographed galaxies in the sky. And so there is a ton of historical data that can be used to identify a possible progenitor star, that is, the star 
star that blew up. So it's a star that blew up. Yeah, this supernova is what we call a type 2 supernova, which is a core collapse supernova. It happens when a massive star reaches the end of its life and goes out with a bang, a supernova. So basically the hunt is to find the old star in those images. It's something that's not there anymore. Yeah, exactly. It's now been blown to pieces, essentially. And this is now a priority for astronomers studying this event. It's possible that some of the survey telescopes, such as PANSTARS here in Hawaii or ZTF at Palomar, may have picked up the progenitor star as it counted down to destruction. So it may be in there somewhere. This is kind of uh, exciting. Sounds like a, a mystery, a drama, like you're going to have a film director or something. <laughs> yeah, it is indeed. A cosmic death has occurred, a high-profile one too. And so astro detectives the world over are on the case to find out what led to this incredible cosmic explosion. And hopefully, at the same time, deepen our understanding of the events leading up to it. Exciting stuff indeed. Sounds very exciting. As usual, Christopher Phillips, we're so lucky to have the report. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah, welcome, Dave. And I'm Dave Lawrence, and you can find Stargazer at hawaiipublicradio.org. Support for Stargazer comes from Haleakala Ranch, with a legacy of livestock, conservation, and land stewardship since 1888, working to restore, maintain, and preserve the open vistas and natural beauty of Maui. More at haleakalaranch.com. Hundreds gathered to take in the high-speed action at the 4th Annual Memorial Day Drag Races in Hilo this past holiday weekend. Among them was Oahu's Jack Camber Jr. Camber makes his living as a strength and conditioning coach, but his first love is the racetrack. He comes from a family with racing in its blood and recently made history with the world's first nine-second Indian street bike. So what does it take to muster up the courage and adrenaline to rocket a quarter-mile track on two wheels in under 10 seconds? The conversations Russell Subiano sat down with Canberra in our studio to go inside the mind of a racer. Talk about the significance of that accomplishment. To be able to break a world record in Hawaii, all Hawaii built, is huge for me, just for drag racing because it's history you know how well known this accomplishment will become we don't know but nobody can ever take away the first person to do something so it's in the books it's there and it's huge for us you know being that my father passed a few years ago and that the motorcycle was dedicated to his favorite motorcycle and it's huge for my team and my family to be able to see me racing again because it was something that was just talked about oh he was decent you know he's good mm-hmm this and that, now I get to race and be out there again. The drag strip is a quarter mile, right? Yes, quarter mile. So how fast are you going to get under 10 seconds on a quarter mile on a motorcycle? So our motorcycle, our best mile an hour was 138 miles an hour from a dead stop. So 440 yards, 1,320 feet, quarter mile. Wow. Um, that's the distance. And yeah, that's, that's not bad. We're getting there. It's getting quick. <laughs> Do you have to modify your motorcycle in any way? Uh, you know, how oh, does it yes. compare to like a, a regular street 100%. bike? 100%. It's totally different. No wheelie bar. So the bikes we race don't have the long bars at the end to prevent them from flipping over. And instead of running a flat slick, we run a crowned round street tire with treads. So it's a whole different setup. And, you know, I have a pretty good base on that. And that and one of my nitro system designs on the bike is what helped us get there. So. We went away from the traditional round fendered cruiser mm-hmm. V-twin, and we kind of set it up to look like a sport bike, but everything had a reason. You know, we did the tail section so we could fit good rubber and a good rim on top because we were limited to tire size beforehand. And road race front suspension, just so the bike handles well. Everything has been fabricated, cut, modified, swing arms extended. Everything's been touched, everything. You know, I think the obvious question is, how safe is this? I mean, you know, how do you how do you keep yourself safe when you're going 138 miles an hour on a motorcycle? Well, safety equipment wise, we have leathers and a helmet, gloves and boots. And, you know, if you come off of a bike at 130 miles an hour, um, you also have to know how to fall. But you're going to get dinged up, you know, yeah. for a car. You have all these regulations to run that kind of time. And think about it, on a motorcycle, you don't even have a seatbelt. Mm-hmm. I would say the biggest safety factor is learning how to ride and taking your time too many guys try to do too much too soon best bet is you go out to the track and i've done it this way go out with a slow bike and just learn how to make it quick by riding just riding it over and over just making multiple passes 
that was my advantage from back in the day at Hawaii Raceway Park is our street nights used to be bumping. Mm-hmm. 200, 300 cars, and we'd make 10, 15 passes in a night. Some places in the States, you go to race, and they make one pass in four mm-hmm. or five hours. So seat time is the biggest thing you can do to safety. Things happen so quick on the motorcycle that you don't really have time to think. So you have to kind of react to it. And if you don't react right, you might want to get into a car or something a little different <laughs> right. or something scares you. You kind of kind of be have to have dead emotions to it. We had a pass right before the nine second pass where the bike came up into a wheel stand and actually jumped and the back tire was in the air. And you could see like my whole body <laughs> in the air. But, you know, people are, are you scared? And and it's not like trying to be fearless. You just don't have time. You don't have time to be scared. It's like asking yeah. you if you're scared sitting there in that chair. This is what you do. You're not right. scared to do this. You know how to do this. It, it sounds a little or a lot similar to weightlifting too, right? Where you know you don't start out lifting the heaviest weight first. You work your way up to that weight. Hundred percent. So it seems like you know you work your way up to that speed as well, right? Yep. And same rules apply. You treat every single pass like you treat every single lift in the gym, whether it's the bar or a record lift. Yeah. You respect it and approach it the same way, and the track has to be the same way. And you have to, when you're racing, you have to want to attack. You have to want to get on the starting line. You got to really be hungry for that green light. You got to want to attack. You can't be prey in the lights and be scared and be worried about those kind of things. You don't have time for that. You have to want to get out there, and that's a big difference. Because, you know, some racers race their whole life, and they never get over that that initial fear when they just have to learn to trust themselves. You know, you've been doing this. You know what to do. Trust what you're going to do. I know you've been racing for a long time, and I've read on your Facebook page that you feel at home on any racetrack. That yeah. You feel like that's your home. Tell me about what you love so much about racing. I think it's so ingrained to me that I couldn't even start to try and describe it. I'll try. I, there's a picture of me and my father at the racetrack in 1976 that makes me one years old. It's like a fish. It's like trying to tell a fish, describe water. They don't really know it exists. It's just been there from their first yeah. conscious thought. And that's how racing was. You know, listening to the conversations, being around the racers, the noise. I can fall asleep at a racetrack with all the cars revving their engines and racing like a baby. I can't sleep. I'm an insomniac. You get me to the racetrack, I can nap at any time. <laughs> it's just home to me. I smell burnt rubber and traction compound and literally the hair on the back of my neck will stand up. Oh, literally. <laughs> And you mentioned your dad earlier. Your late dad was a longtime city and county driver coordinator and not surprisingly, also an avid drag racer. Yes. I imagine your first baby toy was like a wrench. <laughs> like a <laughs> Tonka trucks yeah, and yeah. wrenches and toys. Yep, 100%. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And so it sounds like the love of racing is in your genes. Can you talk about racing as something that your family connected on? I just grew up and conscious thought was my father was a racer and he was pretty good. He raced in the NHRA, NHRA number 793. He actually set a world record in pro comp at one of the races, one of his first races up in the States. It was so close to heart at the family that I didn't even know it was my passion. And it actually took an article in a magazine outside of the family to spark my my passion for it. Uh, It was a 1980 eight or 89 hot rod magazine on big red you ever heard of big red no no it's a 69 camaro full tube chassis they set it up like a road race car it looks amazing and rj godlib drove that car 90 miles in 27 minutes and 54 seconds i think it was he averaged 200 something miles 200 miles an hour and top speed was 220 and that just kind of sparked sparked it in me and that led me to building a Mustang which led me to the track and when I got to the track it was like oh my god this is I kind of forgot about this you know during high school you're not paying attention to the racing you're going out with your friends and whatnot and then that just sparked it up but it was just always present it was always there like food and air you know hot rods racing food air my father was always watching it it was just everywhere so much so that I learned so much about racing not even sitting down and having a conversation like, hey, son, we're going to talk about racing. Just living and listening to him, I got all this knowledge from racing, just being around it because it was so ingrained into everything. What does the scene look like now overall? Are we seeing kind of a die-off or are we seeing new blood come into racing here locally? Uh, What we're seeing is new blood that's getting into street racing because we don't have a racetrack here on Oahu. There's a huge street racing scene. 
I'm not calling out anybody or anything or anything like that, but guys come from the mainland and they come from racetracks and they come here with their hot rods, military, mm -hmm. and they don't have no place to go. They take it to the street and I'm sure they're making it as safe as they possibly can, but they're still doing things on the street. Whereas the other islands, what we've lost here in Oahu is the families. We've lost the opportunities. So I got to race professional in the mainland for my dream class. I never would have been afforded that opportunity if it wasn't for our racetrack to get the seat time, to make it feel like home, yeah. to learn. The Outer Islands still have these opportunities, and when we go to the Outer Islands, you know, they have the families there, and everybody's mm -hmm. racing, and there's that side of it. So the, it's the disconnect from the family and the event and being at the racetrack, but there's still the, the thirst for hot rods. There'll always yeah. be a thirst for hot rods. And now with social media, as long as you can pick up your phone and see somebody doing anything, guys will still want to be fixing up their cars and have a scene but it's sad because they have no place to go they don't know what it's like you know and um there's a lot of old timers waiting for a track that are going to wait till their life is over and never have a track so if there's one thing i do want to say is i implore anybody who wants to race put your car or your bike or your truck or whatever you have on a container on a boat and ship it to where you want to race just ship it and get it done because we don't have time to wait and I'll tell you right now, our tracks do an excellent job, you know, with what they got and for preparing and everything else. But the states are just a different kind of thing. When you bought this bike, was it always your intention to break this record? It was always in my head, mm -hmm. but I thought that the guys in the states were going to get there first because they're so close. They're so, so close. And we just kept sneaking up on it, sneaking up on it. And then it got within where we're kind of like, I think we can hit it and... But a couple of hard races, maybe two or three, but we got there. I don't want you to give away any secrets, but what is the thing that you think put you over the top? My knowledge of nitrous from my father. Mm -hmm. I have no secrets. I'll tell anybody. That's the reason I love motorcycles is in a car, you can get somebody inexperienced to go pretty fast in a safe, caged up, locked in car. Mm -hmm. On a motorcycle, you can't just throw anybody on it. So I'll, I'll give all my secrets away because you still got to ride the bike. So now that you've accomplished this feat, this nine-second Indian motorcycle, what's next? What record are you targeting next, or what standard do you want to break next? Well, one thing I've learned a long time ago is to set your goals as high as possible. I want to keep pushing, and I do see us being the first eight-second Indian scout, yeah. or we'll get into the eights. Uh, if we don't get there first, we'll get there. I do see that happening. This is all on a street bike, by the way. My bike's still street legal, street driven. That's a point of pride for me that my vehicles must be still street legal. I would like to go to the salt flats. I don't have any specific records in mind. I just want to get on the salt and get my vehicle on the salt and do, and do that. From my knowledge, I don't think my father has been to the salt flats, and it would be nice to try and do something that he didn't get to. But knowing my dad, some story would probably pop up after this, that he went to the salt flats and right. ran this and that and whatever else. But it's okay. I, I just want to get there and do as much as possible. You know, My father did so much, and when he passed away, people just disappear. And it's only about what we're here doing with our family and our loved ones now. So I want to do as much of that as possible. We're just trying to do it. It's a little motorcycle program out of Hawaii. We're just trying to do big things. Thank you so much for your time, Jack. Really appreciate you coming in and talking a story with me. Thank you for having me. appreciate it. That was record-setting motorcycle racer Jack Camera Jr. talking with HPR's Russell Subiono. Support for HPR comes from the Kona Coral Society, presenting Jubilate Deo's Hawaii premiere by Dan Forrest, and Chris Fraley's Island Home Awakening, June 4th, 4 p.m. at Hilton Waikoloa, konakoralsociety.org. Each week, New Dimensions explores the social, political, scientific, environmental, and spiritual frontiers with some of today's foremost social innovators, thinkers, scientists, and creative artists. Hello, I'm Amodama, author of Falling Open in a World Falling Apart. Next time on New Dimensions, I'll be talking about the raw edge where spirituality meets humanity. Beginning Sunday morning at 11. 
Support for HPR comes from the Chamber of Sustainable Commerce, a network of businesses striving to sustain workers, communities, and the environment with the June 1st Pauhana Mixer at Arts and Letters Nu'uanu, chamberofsustainablecommerce.org. now for the answer to today's Backyard Quiz. Earlier in the program, we asked you about a cat's third eyelid. While other species of animals, like birds and reptiles, have a similar attribute, the feline is different due to the lid's passive and usually involuntary movement. When in a deep sleep or engaged in a dangerous situation, the extra eyelid will naturally expand over the eye. In order to make room in the socket, cats have a special muscle that retracts the eyeball. Damage to the nerve control of these uh, third eyelids will result in a more prominent and more permanent appearance. If your feline companion is using the third lid in increased frequency, particularly in one eye more than the other, consider a visit to your veterinarian to check on its eye health. The third eyelid, interestingly, has three common names, uh, nictitating, membrane, uh, nictitans, or ha. And the winner for today's quiz, Peggy Hansen of Wailuku. You got it right. That's today's quiz. If you have an idea for one, uh, for one send it to talk back at hawaiipublicradio.org. <laughs> Our next story takes us to the Big Island. Jazz and blues fans are getting ready to celebrate some of the genre's top musicians. Music is just part of the DNA of Hawaii, of the people of Hawaii. It's just the fabric in life that we all embody and love. That's what I do. I share my music with people and give them a touch of the island. It's fun and it's it's great. It's, musicians are awesome. Those were sounds from the Big Island Jazz and Blues Festival. We talked to Ken Bergmeier, whose passion for both styles of music drove him to create the Big Island Jazz and Blues Festival. It marks the 10th anniversary with a concert this Saturday. You may know uh, Bergmeier as an award-winning film producer who has managed to combine his love for music and documentaries into one. We sat down to chat last week about reaching this milestone. We've been doing it at the Monica Beach Hotel in Oceanfront, one of the most beautiful venues on the planet. And I, I always bring in guys from the New Orleans Jazz and Heritage Festival who always play the main stages. Like this year, we're bringing in uh, Wayne Toops. He's a Cajun Zydeco legend. He's you know, been in the Music Hall of Fame. He's a Grammy winner. And we're going to bring him out to do his Cajun thing with his accordion. And then we're also going to be bringing out uh, Donald Harrison from New Orleans, and he's recognized as the big chief of Mardi Gras, but he's also an NEA jazz master, which he got last year. Same as like Miles Davis and John Coltrane from the National Endowment for the Arts. And Donald is a really special person. He was even his, the TV series on HBO that won a whole bunch of Emmys was Treme, and it was the story about him and his father, the whole series, which is actually a great, and and Donald has come to our festival tour, and he always brings that New Orleans vibe, and, and the crowd loves him, and he always gets standing ovation. So it's great having that New Orleans vibe. And then, and then we also will bring in the Iguanas, one of the, the hottest New Orleans bands. Uh, they just got done this week playing at the Eurythm in, in New York City. They're always on tour. A lot of the music has been in many films, and uh, they're one of the greatest rock, blues, jazz, Zydeco, they'll even do Tejano, traditional mariachi-style music. And they actually are the rhythm section that I usually put with some of these uh, major cats I bring in from New Orleans. And another great New Orleans uh, person we're bringing in, the first time it's his Hawaii debut, is Jason Ritchie, who's probably one of the most famous and influential and celebrated harmonica uh, players in the, in the world right now. 
and he's played with everybody. He's won a Grammy. He just won the uh, 2023 Blues Music Awards as Best Harmonica Player. And bringing him over for the first time, it's really kind of exciting. And like I said, the Iguanas will back him up, and he'll get the crowd up and roaring. And, and another great uh, person from New Orleans we're bringing is Johnny Sansoni, and he's an amazing accordion player and uh, also does the harp. And uh, he's going to be playing, and he's a multi-winner Blues Music Award uh, uh, winner. And, you know, he always plays the main stage at the New Orleans Jazz Fest. And bringing him out is another great one. And, and then we're bringing another Hawaii debut from New Orleans, Jason Mingeldorf. And he's one of the probably the most in-demand saxophonists right now. Um, he just recently won a Grammy. And he's, you know, this guy has played with Dr. John, Harry Connick Jr., Wayne Newton, the OJs. Uh, he recently was on a tour with Clint Black. He's really a diverse saxophonist. He can play all genres, very eclectic. And we're bringing the trombonist, Steve Ture, from the Saturday Night Live Band. He's one of the original Saturday Night Live Band members, and he just won the uh, trombonist of the year, and just like two days ago. And we're really excited to bring Steve. And Steve, uh, Steve Ture also plays the conch. So he's always going to, he always bring, when he's going to come out here, he's going to probably bring about 20 conch shells, and he'll do a presentation with that on stage, then do it with his trombone. And and one great thing is Steve Ture and Donald Harrison were also with Art Blakey, one of the jazz legends. They were part of his young jazz messengers back, you know, 40, 30 years ago. And, uh, they you know, that was one of their mentors, and they were part of his messenger group. And they're probably going to get up on stage, and they always jam together as well. And, uh, yeah, Steve Ture, Saturday Night Live band, everyone knows that. And uh, he's always that guy in the back, and they always show some great shots of him. But we're really excited to bring him back. In. So and you've got a, the best trombonist is amazing. You've got quite a lineup here for this show. You know, when we last talked, I know that you had completed a documentary film, and you were uh, shopping it around to a lot of the film festivals. How'd that go over? Yes, the Jazz Festival was postponed three times during COVID. So we finally got the okay to do it in June of 2022. And every year I have the Jazz Alley TV show. You know, it's my show's been on for like 30 years. It's a world-renowned show. It's been in, it's seen, it's seen in 80 countries, jazz, blues, world music, Hawaiian show. But we filmed it, and it came out so great that we decided, let's do this documentary. We call it the Hawaii Big Island Jazz Fest First COVID. And it turned out really as a, a beautiful piece of music for Hawaii. And we entered the documentary into the uh, Cannes World Film Festival that got accepted, Sweden Film Festival, Rotterdam. And then we sent, sent it to Tokyo, and we actually won at the Tokyo uh, International Film Festival. And then it went to uh, Argentina. And we just recently, last month, we won at the California Film Music TV Awards in San Francisco. And then it went on to, like, Rhode Island and New Orleans, and it's still out there hitting the film festival circuit. So it's got legs. It's really been <laughs> It does have legs. It's still going. And you can see that, all that stuff online. We have it all posted so people can see the trailers, and we're going to release the full documentary really soon so everyone can see it. And, you know, one thing with our festivals, we always do tie in the Hawaiiana on it. Like, I've got Grammy winner John Keave, you know, born and raised Big Island guy. And he, John, says, I've worked with him many, many for a few decades now, and he now he's created the Slack Key Jazz, and he's calling it Slaz. So it's kind of <laughs> fun. We always put him up on stage to kind of bring that element, you know, of Hawaiian music with his take on jazz. And of course, we have his beautiful wife, uh, wife Hope Kave, and she'll do a Hawaiian blessing pule for us. And we have artists like uh, Bill Noble, saxophonist, born and raised saxophonist, two-time Nahoku winner. He'll be on the main stage as well. And we have Benny Uitake, uh He's a Hilo born, but lives on Maui. Uh, ukulele uh, guitar master, and he'll do his blues thing. And then we have Larry Dupio, Lightning Larry, who's a two-time Nahoku winner, uh, blues rock guitarist, born and raised uh, Hawaii Island guy. And so we really kind of tie in the local greats as well as you know playing with these well-known musicians. And then at the end, it's an amazing. Everyone's on stage and doing an encore on a whole for everybody. Talk about the, the venue. Well, the venue is, uh, I'll tell you, it's at the Mauna Kea Beach Hotel. And if, if you've never been there, you should go. It's one of the finest hotels and best beaches in, on the planet, in my opinion. And Rockefeller originally built this hotel. And it's on the Luau grounds, and it's within steps of the ocean. 
and the stage is right there, so we get the most beautiful sunsets. It's under some beautiful cavity trees. It's got a nice canopy cover and some monkey pot trees, and it's just it's one of the most breathtaking settings for a music venue. And you know, I've traveled over 50 countries with my Jazz Alley show, filming from everywhere from you know the Montreux Jazz Festival to Jazz Juan in south of France, to New Zealand and Australia and Bali and you know Cancun Jazz and Blues Festival, Barbados, St. Lucia. Aruba, and I'll tell you what, this festival that we created is is still, I think, in my opinion, like the top venue in the world. It's still beautiful. And I'm really blessed. You know, every every year we get hundreds and hundreds of musicians that want to come and play with us. So, you know, we're blessed with that, and we do sell it out every year. We're really, you know, that's always wonderful to be able to, as a producer of a festival, to say, oh, yeah, we will get it sold out again, and it does happen. And we're more than half sold out, and... You can go to Big Island Jazz and Blues Festival dot com. It has all that, and then you can see the trailer for our film on there as well. And and being ten years, a decade, it's it's hard to believe, but we're going to keep keep doing it. And I'm right now trying to put together my tenth Maui Jazz and Blues Fest, and hopefully make that all happen. It's it's just, it's always a challenge, but you know we keep doing it because we love music and the arts and love to share it with our community. That was Ken Bergmeier, the force behind the Big Island Jazz and Blues Festival, now celebrating its 10th anniversary. The concert kicks off June 3rd at the iconic Mauna Kea Hotel. Look for links on the conversation page of our website, hawaiipublicradio.org. time now. Tomorrow, a child actor from Hawaii well on his way to a stage career. He's in a traveling Broadway production, and he's only nine. Call our talkback line to share feedback at 808-792-8217. Email us at talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. You can also find the conversation online on our website or wherever you find your podcast. I'm Catherine Cruz. Join us tomorrow for more of the conversation.